title of this morning's sermon is Overcoming the World. Overcoming the World. And when you think of that word overcoming, my thought anyway was that life is full of conflicts and struggles of many different kinds. So the particular context we're going to look at this morning is overcoming the world. But when you think about just overcoming, it brings to mind all of these various conflicts and struggles that you might face in life. You're facing some right this moment. It's absolutely guaranteed that that's true. No, depending on who you are, that struggle or that conflict or that difficulty that's in front of you might be different than the one sitting next to you. The person sitting next to you is going through something though too. And they're facing difficulty, they're facing conflict, they're looking at a wall in front of them or an obstacle in front of them in many different ways in life. Now, they can be those conflicts and struggles. They can be emotional. They could be physical struggles or conflicts that you're involved in, even with illness that you might be going through. And we've had some prayer requests you know, go out. When you look at the prayer list, I would say that a significant number of those prayer requests relate to both spiritual things, which we'll get to in a second, but also physical conflict, physical struggles, physical difficulties that people are going through. You might be experiencing psychological conflict or struggles. You might be having relational conflicts or struggles in your life right now. Don't look at them right now. Uh, Everyone will know then. But you might be having some relational struggles or conflicts and deal with those in the car on the way home. But you might also be having a spiritual conflict or struggle. You might be a believer who is struggling with some aspect of your faith. Might involve understanding something. You're struggling to understand it. Might be that you're weary in your faith. It might be that you're kind of worn out and you're beat down even with the amount of effort that is involved in physical exertion that's involved in serving the Lord at times. A very dear friend and I were talking about that the other day. Even when you're, you're even thinking about the commandments of the Lord, they're not burdensome. But that doesn't mean that you can't be physically or mentally or, or even socially or relationally exhausted from, the, from ministry, from whatever ministry God has given you. And as you serve the Lord, it doesn't mean that you won't get run down, that you won't get worn out. It just means that God, when you keep your eyes focused on him, he always promises to renew our strength. He always promises to come alongside of us and put a little bit more oil in the jar, so to speak. But that doesn't mean that serving the Lord, it's easy in a spiritual sense. It's a light load in a, in a mental sense, or it should be in, in a mental sense or at least a psychological sense, but that doesn't mean it's not, it's easy in a human sense. There is a human aspect to investing in people in whatever ministry God has put in front of you. But it's not burdensome in the sense that, it's not burdensome in the way that we would think of it, uh, where this is, this is something that I'm, uh, that's difficult for me to want to do. Even though it's physically It's physically exhausting. It's still something that I'm eager to let the Lord work in and through me to accomplish the mission that he has in people's lives as he uses me as a conduit or a channel through whom he can reflect himself into the lives of people that he puts in my spheres of contact. 
So I just wanted to just even touch on that second. The reality was just psychological and relational, even, even spiritual conflict in your life and struggles in your life. Now, when you're thinking about the ultimate spiritual conflict, the Bible says that we are in the midst of a spiritual warfare. And when you're thinking about any kind of conflict or struggle, it doesn't have to apply just to the spiritual conflict, but there's two potential outcomes. If you're involved in a conflict or a struggle, one outcome is that you will overcome whatever that struggle or conflict or hard thing is. The other outcome is that you'll suffer defeat. So you'll either overcome or you'll suffer defeat. And when it comes to spiritual matters, of course, like I said the Bible has described engaging in this spiritual warfare. And when you're thinking about a war, a war consists of many individual battles. And each of those individual battles has an individual outcome. But the war only has one outcome. So picture that as we're going through this even today, talking about overcoming the world. There's a spiritual war. There is a spiritual warfare that we're engaged in. And that war has one outcome. And for the Christian, it's victory. Oh, I ruined it. You know, now you're not going to be hanging on your seat, on the edge of your seats. We win in the end. Okay, so that's not a very good storyteller there. That's the end. But in any war, there's going to be many conflicts like skirmishes and battles along the way. And in each one of those individual battles, there's an individual outcome. And that outcome can be overcoming or that outcome can be suffering defeat. And when you're thinking about the enemies of the Christian, they're commonly summarized as the world, the flesh, and the devil. And John's focus in 1 John, not that it isn't about Satan, he has talked about Satan, and ultimately the thing that makes the world so such a strong or fierce adversary is that it's under the control and influence of Satan, and so in many ways they're inseparable. But John has been focusing of those three adversaries that this spiritual battle or the spiritual warfare that the Christian is involved in involves, the one that he's been most focused on is the world. In fact, when you're thinking about John talking about the world as being a fierce adversary of the, of the Christian, being one of the primary things that the Christian should be on guard against, should be focused on, should be aware of, should be mentally considering anyway, the danger of, it's the world. And John has talked about it 19 times, the world and the danger the world faces for the Christian, 19 times so far in this relatively small book. And you say relatively small, we've been at this for 37 weeks. 19 times though, John has mentioned what a fierce adversary the world is to the Christian. And you think about that. It must be something that we ought to give some consideration to. We ought to not just say, well, that's just John's opinion. I, I guess I know best. The world, the world poses no danger to me. Maybe that brother in Christ, maybe that sister, but not me. And the reality is that you'd be naive to think that. And remember, this is sort of a book about being deceived, being deceived externally and being deceived internally into believing that your 
experiencing or enjoying a walk of faith, a life characterized by faith, a life characterized by dependence on God's provision for you in the past and in every moment of your life, characterized by this intimate fellowship with the Father where you think that you're involving Him in your life when the reality is that you are not. And so the whole book has been about us having this perception of our spirituality and our spiritual health that is inaccurate. And so when you're thinking about the inaccuracy that we come to have about our own spiritual health, you have to say, what, what is the thing that is influencing my thinking most so that I would come to see the, the circumstance in front of me or see my own state of being in a way that is flawed, in a way that is full of self-deception, in a way that is incorrect? Well, it's because your thinking is under attack. Your thinking has been permeated. It's been, it's been influenced by the lies of the world around you. You see, the, the problem for the Christian, and not a problem that can't be overcome, we're going to talk about overcoming it today, but the, the danger for the Christian is that he is not of this world, his citizenship is in heaven, but he's still living in this world. So though he's not of this world anymore, his, his citizenship has shifted from being a citizen of earth to being a citizen of heaven, from being associated with the realm of Adam and now being associated with being in Christ, being a child of God, though that has happened, he still remains in the world. And the world is described as crooked and perverse. So if you're in the midst of something, it's impossible to do that without having any having it affect you in any way. And I liken it to the idea of, some of you know that I'm into mountain biking, and if you've ever gone mountain biking, you'll realize that if the trails are muddy, there's absolutely no way to ride down that trail without getting some mud on you. Now, this might seem obvious, but in case it's not to you, the longer you spend on that trail at any point in time, the more mud you get on you. And eventually, you're going to have so much mud on you and your bike is going to have so much mud on it that the wheels will quit spinning. It'll actually clog up all around the wheels if it's the kind of clay-based soil that we have around here a lot and you won't even be able to ride any further. The point of it is that it would be absolutely crazy to think that you never needed any periodic cleansing of your thinking and your attitudes and your ways of thinking. I've said that twice. Your ways of even perceiving yourself and the world around you. That wouldn't even make sense. So that's what John has been trying to get at. So today he's going to remind believers of two things. One, that the final victory over the world is already positionally secured through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. So he's never going to forget that and you should never forget that. We're going to celebrate that later today when we celebrate his death on our behalf, the blood that was shed on our behalf, his burial and his resurrection on our behalf. But then the second thing he's going to remind these believers of when it comes to victory is that practical victory can be presently experienced through ongoing faith and dependence on God's spirit and intimacy, living life in intimacy with God. So he wants to tell you two things. There's victory available permanently, positionally, and there's victory available in time, and the victory is available through the same mechanism for both, by faith. 
as you walk by faith and dependence on God's provision for you and the empowerment, God's power instead of your own, there is victory available positionally and then practically. So let's dive into it. So if you haven't turned there already, turn to 1 John chapter 5. We're going to start reading in verse 1, but we're going to be, Lord willing, covering verses 4 and 5, and we need to pick up the pace here this morning a little bit. Chapter 5, verse 1, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ, so that could be anyone, that person is born of God, and everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. Meaning if the Spirit, if you're presently loving the one who birthed other believers, then you're going to presently be loving those believers because the Spirit of God, if he's directing your life, if you're enjoying presently intimate fellowship with the Father, You're not going to be doing anything else other than loving your fellow siblings in God's family. Verse 2, by this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. Loving God is going to lead to this mentality where I have a desire to serve him and follow his instructions for my life not even not empowered by myself but empowered by his spirit working inside of him so my response of love is that i would want to presently enjoy an intimate relationship with god as i'm enjoying intimate fellowship with god his spirit is going to be free to work in me as his spirit is free to work in me his spirit is always going to direct me in a way that is consistent with god's will for my life that's a fact And so as a part of that, we're going to be, again, loving the children of God. Verse 3, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. And that's what we touched on last week in our message, that it's not burdensome to be living a life that is directed by God, empowered by God, provided in every way for by God, as we do nothing but are you, be yielded instruments that are willing to get our focus off of ourselves and our circumstances and the world around us and lift our eyes and turn your eyes to Jesus. And as our eyes are focused on the author and finisher of our faith, as we have this vertical mindset where we're having our thinking affected by eternal things, by supernatural things, by the Spirit of God directing our thinking, both will to do of His good pleasure, that while that's true, that the Spirit of God is going to produce through our lives lives that are consistent with God's will, which will involve heeding God's instructions. It's not particularly complicated. We talked about this idea that you're going to wake up each day, His mercies are going to have be renewed have been renewed every morning. You're going to have this opportunity to have a fresh start, which is symbolized even by the way that God designed even the darkness, a nighttime and a daytime, this period of rest, this period of renewal. This is all a picture, even the fact that God could have designed, as an aside, God could have designed, there is no nighttime, there is no sleep, there is no rest. You're just awake all of the time. But I think there's so much symbolism even in why God provides for a time of rest, a time of renewal, a night, a night time where then the new dawn, you have, this, you have all of these pictures and symbols of how God is providing you this new opportunity in front of you each day. Now, why did he need to do that? Because we make a mess of a lot of days, don't we? So if there was only one day, it would start to feel in some ways, well, I can only speak for myself, it might start to feel like this is just you know, constant defeat, perhaps. But God says, no. That day maybe didn't go the way that it should have or I wanted it to. Maybe you didn't 
experience joy today because it's only in my presence that joy is found. But you know what? Tomorrow's going to be a fresh start. Tomorrow's a new day. And I don't want you to look backward. I want you to look forward. I want you to forget the things that are behind. Now, why did he design it that way? So that we could have that sense of renewal, that sense of being refreshed, that sense of, uh, of starting over, having a, having a new opportunity to live life with him that day. So then the question just becomes, and this is the, the simple part of it, kids, before, before I lose you. When I say kids, I mean young people. As I get to be 43, I can call even you 20-year-olds kids. Take this away. You have that new start every morning. You had one this morning. And then there's this moment-by-moment opportunity to say, am I going to include God in my thinking today? Am I going to take him along and involve him in whatever is happening? Or am I going to leave him behind and exclude him today? And then tomorrow you're going to have that same decision to make. Now, within that day, it's a moment-by-moment thing. I'm not saying it's not. I'm just talking about this idea of every day there's these new opportunities to live life that way. So it's not burdensome. It should be encouraging to you to see that this isn't me that's doing this. My part in this is to have this positive volitional response to the Lord where I say, today I want to involve you. Today I want to allow you to be a part of my thinking, a part of my decisions. I want to take you with me to the places and spaces that you direct me today. Now, that doesn't mean that uh, every moment of every day is this time where you can have this very intentional uh, interaction with God. Sometimes you're going to be busy with the, the cares of the day. But the point is, when you go to work or when you go to that event or when you're having that conversation with somebody or as you're driving or as you're walking or as you're lying down or as you're sitting up, and this might remind you of the way the language of Deuteronomy even where he's telling them, teach your kids this, talk about these things in every different facet of your life. So then while you're doing those things, are you going to leave God or exclude God from that part of your life? Or are you going to generally allow him to be a part of it and to influence even your thinking in that? I was talking to somebody the other day about this idea that we have this way of compartmentalizing our lives. Anybody familiar with maybe what I'm talking about? This idea that you're going to break your life into all of these different little cubes and sections. And that we have a way, if we're not careful, and we're not thoughtful about it and not intentional about it, we have this way about saying, this is a God cube, this is not a God cube. I, I think of him and involve him in this very specific little cube of my life, but I don't, I don't do it here or here or here. But these certain spots are where I let God in. These are the spots that we say, you know, these are my spiritual cubes. But the rest of it, I'm not going to involve him in that. And I think that's dangerous, but I think it's the reality. I think if you really think through your normal routines, you're going to find that because of programming and habits and patterns in your life, that you have these times that you're much more likely to involve God in those moments. And there's whole sections of your life that you've just as a general rule excluded him completely. And he's saying, I don't want to live some of your life with you. I want to live all of your life with you. I want, to take, I want you to take me with you and include me in whatever it is that you're doing. Frankly, we've already got enough for a message here. Verse 4. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. So this is why this is not burdensome because whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. 
Verse 5, who is he who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? We'll see what we can do here this morning. Verse 4, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. But we'll start with this, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. So we have this four here, which is this conjunction that explains the basis or the cause of what was just said. So what was just said, you could understood it as because. So you're gonna start verse four with because. And so then you'd have to go back to what was the last clause in verse three. And his commandments are not burdensome because whatever is born of God overcomes the world is how you'd finish that thought. It connects the previous thought and provides this explanation about why keeping God's commandments is not, or at least should not, be burdensome. And the answer is, whatever is born of God overcomes the world. So let's look at whatever is born of God. The emphasis here is on the source of victory. See, born is the same word translated born and begotten in verse 1. And so when you're thinking about even this source of victory, Note that he uses this more universal word whatever instead of whoever. So everyone and everything that, is, that originates with God is the idea, overcomes the world. And we're going to see why that is in a second. But it's defined as this, brought into existence, conceived, fathered, or produced by. Here it's in the perfect tense. So this is an action that was completed in the past, a past event, that now has enduring effects in the present. So when it comes to you, and of course that's the primary focus here is these believers that John is writing to. So when it comes to these believers, what, it, what he's saying is this isn't burdensome or tedious because you've been born of God in the past and now it's having enduring effects on your life in the present and we'll get to that in a second. But the idea here is anything that originates with or is produced by God Present victory in the life of the believer, which we're going to talk about here in a second, is made possible as a result of the new birth and the ongoing enable, enabling and empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Now that, the new birth happened at a point in time. That's why this is present tense. This is a past event that already took place, this birth into the family of God. Now how was that brought about? And we're going to see that it was brought about by faith, but that's something that John has covered several times, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ. It's putting your confidence in the truthfulness of who Jesus was and what he did for you. So he made claims that he was the Messiah, that he was the Savior of the world, and then he died, was buried, and rose again. He was seen by many. We had Resurrection Sunday not long ago. He was seen by thousands of people, 500 at once, but those are estimates. But he was seen by many people over a significant period of time there so that it would provide all the evidence that was necessary. Many of those people were still around even in, as eyewitnesses even many years later so that those early church believers before the canon of Scripture was even completed, they could have tracked down and talked to some of these individuals. But the point just being that there was this place in time where you had to make this decision if whether you were going to put your confidence and trust and believe in who Jesus said he was and believe in what he had said he had done for you and believe in the outcome or the result of that death in your place. There, there had to be a time where you came to either accept that or you continue to reject that. But that created or brought about this new birth where you were born into the family of God. 
Now, the ongoing effects of that is that as a result of the enabling and empowerment of the Holy Spirit, it is Christ's life that is now being lived in him or her. That's what makes it possible as the source of what's going to come next, the overcoming. So overcoming the world is tied to this positional connection that we have to the power of God himself through his spirit living inside of us and through the new birth where we were born into this identification with him. So we're going to see that as he has overcome and we're now identified with him, we overcome because he overcame. And then on a practical level, as he is the overcomer and as his spirit is empowering and working inside of us, then his power source working within the yielded believer will lead to practical overcoming the world in a day-to-day, moment-by-moment kind of a basis. So that is sort of the focus here of this whatever is born of God. But what is the outcome now? Whatever is born of God, this is stated as a fact, overcomes the world. Overcomes is defined as to defeat, prevail, conquer, or win victory over. Now overcomes what? Has victory over what? Is def- defeats what? The world. And we've identified or defined this before, but this is just a, a, a human-created definition here. But I like, this is kind of what I've pieced together through you know, a bunch of different ideas from other people, but the system of thinking, values, beliefs, and morals are part of that thinking process, controlled and influenced by Satan, that operates in direct opposition or rebellion to God and leaves or excludes God. It leaves God out or excludes God. And I've told you before that I think the thing that is the easiest part of that definition is it's a satanically influenced world system that leaves and excludes God out. What makes it worldly is that it excludes God. Now, here's a question for you. If you're going about your day and you're leaving God out, if you're excluding God in your day, are you not being worldly? Are you not worldly-minded? If you are engaged in this way, this present state of being or present state of existence where you're excluding God and leaving him out, that's the very definition of what worldliness is. So is the Christian immune from worldliness? And the answer is no. The Christian is constantly under attack to adopt and assimilate the thinking of the world. And so if the world by definition excludes God as we are affected by those attacks on our thinking and we start to exclude God from our lives, then we've become a part of the very thing that we're supposed to be illuminating light into. We've actually become a part of the darkness, not positionally. We never could be a part of it positionally, but practically. We're, we're playing on the wrong team. We're that kid that you see. You might see me do it as I keep going more and more senile. You're that, you're that kid, though, that gets a rebound and puts it back up on the other team's goal. That forgets what team they're on. Gets distracted or confused enough to forget which side they're fighting for. So, in any event, that's worldliness. That's the, the world definition that, that I've been using. Now, indicative mood. This is communicated as a statement of fact. This isn't a, this isn't a statement that says this might be true. This is a statement of fact. Whatever is born of God overcomes the world with like an emphatic period or exclamation point behind it. This is a fact. 
Now, present tense, though, no. So while being born again was in the perfect tense, a completed action in the past that has an influence or impact on the present, here's the present tense, though, now, overcomes the world. This is talking about action in process or a present state of being. So whatever is born of God overcomes the world. The focus here is practical experiential victory in time, your present state of being. So it is a fact that at a point in time you were born of God. And if you're presently living life in intimate fellowship with God, if you're experiencing or you're walking by faith, then in that moment, everything you say and do is going to be produced or directed by God's Spirit. And if everything you say and do is produced or directed by God's Spirit, it's going to be the type of thinking and behavior and actions that are overcoming the world system. It's going to be the opposite of what the world is trying to promote in your life. It's the opposite of what the world is going to be trying to dangle in front of you or attract you with because it's going to have been birthed by or sourced in God himself, God's spirit working in you. So if God's spirit is working in you in the present tense, if that's, you're allowing that to happen, then you're going to have this victory that only God can provide in your life. And so this victorious manner of living now, remember this is tied back to the last clause of verse 3, and his commandments are not burdensome. So this victorious life, which is a life defined by a life that is in unity or it's cohesive with God's direction for your life. And so that's not going to be burdensome if it's one that is going to be produced by God working in and through you. It's going to be the overcoming life in a practical, present tense state of being. So it's not going to be burdensome. That victorious manner of living is the abundant life. I have come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. The abundant life is the life that's lived with him. That is the life of victory. That's the victorious life, the life that then is also not burdensome when you come to the specific applications of how that's a life that's directed by the Spirit of God. So to be victorious is the opposite of being a casualty or being defeated. So if you're presently sitting here this morning and on a spiritual plane, we don't have to talk about the physical plane or the psychological plane, the emotional or relational planes. We're here to talk primarily and focus primarily on the spiritual battle that you're involved with. But regardless of which one it is, if you're feeling defeated, if you're thinking just like the world is thinking, if that thinking has gotten a hold of your thinking so that you are, in fact, forgetting which side you're on, forgetting who you are, forgetting your identity, if that's the case, that's not overcoming the world. That's not God's desire for our lives. God's desire for our lives would not be that we go through life in spiritual defeat. God's desire for our lives that we would go through life in spiritual victory, which is our definition of overcoming to defeat the adversary or to be victorious in the conflict that's in front of us, to have that success that is not brought about or wrought by our own efforts. So while this is true in terms of overcoming the world, this is true as a completed event positionally, Whoever is born of God has overcome the world in the sense that one day we will be glorified. We will be free from the very presence of sin itself, which means we'll have to be free from this world itself, which is 
defined as a system of influence that is satanic in origin, that is seeking to promote a rebellion against God. So we'll have to be free from this world. We'll have that final victory as we're taken from this world. We're raptured. We're either by death or through by the rapture, and we go to forever be with the Lord, and one day, of course, we're told that he's going to create a new heaven and a new earth. So this earth will be dissolved like snow, the writer of Amazing Grace wrote in one of the last lines, one of the last stanzas. The earth will soon dissolve like snow, the sun forbear to shine. But God who called me here below will be forever mine. And that's not a stanza. We sing that often. I've told you about it before, but the reality is that God has, there is an ending to the story. We know how that story ends. We will be victorious in that positional, permanent, final, that final victory over the war. But this is more focused here on practical Christian living in time. And when you're thinking about Christian living in time, does a believer experience practical victory over the world or the world's influence simply because he is born of God positionally? Just because you're God's child, are you automatically going to be experiencing practical victory over the world? No, right? Some emphatic no's, right? This is, we've been living through this, right? No, it's not automatic. So what John has been getting at, a book written to believers, is he's talking to them about practical Christian living. How can we have victory over the world in time, not just looking forward to that final victory in eternity? So we've been focused on this experiential victory in time, this present state of being. The victorious manner of living, though, back to the last clause of verse 3, it's not burdensome this is the abundant life this is the life that is a life where you're thriving this is the life that God intended for us this is where peace is found this is where contentment is found this is where joy is found this is where happiness is found this is where anxiety is left behind this is where rest is found this is where the renewing of your mind is found so that, isn't that where you ought to want to live? So then the question becomes this. What battle are we talking about when we're talking about having overcoming in this battle? Well, I've already said we're, this, this spiritual battle that is raging for your thinking and for your allegiance. Now, there's two parts to that. It's a battle for your mind. So what battle are you involved in? What is the warfare that you're involved in? You can talk about spiritual warfare and you can kind of get lost in the weeds on that. It's a battle for your thinking. It's a battle for what is going to have the controlling influence of your mind. Uh, Is your mind going to be under the influence of the Spirit of God directing or the world around you's influence, the influence of the flesh, your your own sin nature? What's going to be influencing your thinking? That is the sort of the, the focus there when you're talking about the spiritual battle is where is your mind going to be at? Now, the other part of it, though, that I brought up here is allegiance. Where are your allegiances going to lie? What is Satan hoping to accomplish in the life of the Christian? Can, can Satan overcome the Christian by making the Christian not a Christian anymore? No. 
Once saved, always saved. If you've been born into a family, that's permanent. That was a point in time that can never be changed. Satan cannot change your final destiny. Praise the Lord. That is secure. That is fixed. That is final. Praise the Lord. So what is Satan's objective in the life of the Christian? For the unbeliever, it's to keep them blinded from the gospel so they never will become a child of God. But for the Christian, what's his focus? To shift your allegiance. To make you ineffective. To distract you from your mission. To blot out or cover or maybe dull your light. If Satan can get you running on your own strength, then he can get you to be like a flashlight. You can barely see any light coming out of it. If the Christian can get you away from that power source that is making your light so bright because it's powered, that flashlight is powered by a supernatural God working in and through you, if he can get you to throw away this power source and to stick in some of your own batteries, and you'll be that guy whacking your flashlight against your hand, trying to get just the littlest amount of light out of that. Anyone been there? Every time you actually need a flashlight? Ah, uh, right? Some amens? <laughs> That's what he wants to do. It's a battle for your allegiance. Now, how are you ultimately defeated? You know, when we talk about this battle for your thinking, your allegiance, how is the Christian defeated practically? What are some of the things? Well, they're sidelined, they're distracted, they're redirected, where they're directed in another way, meaning they have a certain amount of time, treasure, talents, they have a certain amount of resources, and they just get, Satan just does a good job of, he doesn't necessarily dangle overt sin in front of us all the time. Sometimes he just like redirects us so that we'll invest all that time, treasure, and talent into something that is ultimately not our primary mission. Is that wrong? No, but it's seek first the kingdom of God. It's this idea of preeminence, the one that is worthy, the one that should be number one, that sh- the one that should be at the top of the list, Satan's most common tactic for Christians is just make him be not at the top of the list. Work him down to number two. If you work him down to number two, it's not that hard to get him to three, four, five, six, seven. And for you, only you can say. Where, does he, where is he on that list? 737? Sometimes he entices you. That's one of the ways he does it, through enticement. He will dangle something that is really flashy in front of you. Sometimes it's overt sinfulness. Just go watch. Watch any, doesn't matter which network it is, doesn't matter what TV show it is, just go watch any of it. I guarantee there'll be like a winsable moment in every program where you'll say, that's not right. It's either some way of thinking that is promoted. It's either some something that's sexual in some way that it's, it's not appropriate. It's inappropriate. So it's just flat out wrong. It promotes a satanic agenda. It promotes something directly contrary to the word of God. It flashes something that isn't modest. It's an issue of modesty. 
but it's hard to watch any program on any network without every, in any single one, if you're actually being honest with yourself, saying whether it's that language or it's that thinking or it's that lack of modesty or it's those world standards that are being promoted, that's what, that's what Satan is doing. So we'll just call that just enticing you. How about blinding you? So we've got distraction, we've got redirection, enticement, we've got you blinded. We just can't see it anymore. Or how about deception that we've been talking about throughout this book? External deception, internal deception. Satan isn't a one-trick pony. I hope, I hope that's the takeaway for you here. How does this happen? How is the Christian defeated practically? Defeated by all of these different ways. And why does it happen? Well, there's a bunch of reasons why it happens. It happens through ignorance. Sometimes the reason it happens is you literally don't know better. A lot of times it happens through pride and overconfidence, though. You think you're doing better than you are. You think you're more capable of resistance than you actually are. You figure that you'll be the last one standing, and the reality is that you've already fallen. Because by thinking that you'll be the last one standing, you're filled with pride, friend. The man who thinks he is something... Of all these things that God hates, he despises pride. I know that's no one here that that applies to, but how about unpreparedness? How does this happen? Unpreparedness. I'm not ready for the conflict. I'm not renewing my mind with the word of God. I'm not fellowshipping with other believers so that we can strengthen and lift up each other and come alongside of each other and be spiritually encouraging to one another. I'm not praying. I'm not listening to the word of God taught. I'm not prepared at all because I, I don't even see the danger. I call that having your guard down. It's another one on my list here. Another one on the list is lost focus. How does this happen? You've lost your focus. You've you've started to think that somehow the Christian life can be lived on autopilot. It's lived on autopilot in the sense that when you have your eyes fixed on the Lord, he's the one who will be flying the plane. So in that sense, it is a life of autopilot. But yet, it's a moment-by-moment, day-by-day decision. Where am I going to fix my gaze? Where am I going to put my focus? Am I going to have a heart and an attitude that wants to let the Lord direct in my life? Well, here's a little bit of a warning, too. Some incorrectly understand this phrase, overcoming the world. Whatever is born of God overcomes the world. Some incorrectly understand this phrase to equate practical victory with positional salvation. What they say in effect is, if you are not presently overcoming, then you're not saved. The one who is uh, genuinely saved, they'll always use a word like that, sincerely saved, legitimately saved, authentically saved, that person will overcome practically. So if you're not overcoming practically, their doctrine that some of which they get from these passages as they say, that this means that you were never saved because if you were born of God, then you would be overcoming. Now what's the problem with this perspective? The problem with this perspective is it's contrary to the word of God. The word of God says that the focus is not on you at all. It's on God providing for the one who cannot provide for themselves. 
until you see that you're helpless and hopeless and hellbound, until you see that you have nothing to contribute to this, until you can put in your trust and confidence and rest wholly in the provision of God to meet your need when it came to the penalty of your sin and then the power of or the influence of sin over your, in your life until you can see that they're one and the same thing that I had to have complete def- dependence on the finished work of Jesus Christ on my behalf as he died in my place was buried and arose again because I could do nothing to solve this sin problem or this penalty that I owed that was associated with my sinfulness. I could never repay it. I could never fix it. I could never dig myself out of that binder predicament that I was in. You can't, you can't be saved until you realize that it's got to be all him and what he can do for you, not for what he has done for you. That's how you're saved. But some of them will say they believe that. But yet they'll say, but if practically you're not overcoming, then you were never saved to begin with. But what is the problem? It's now all of a sudden shifting the emphasis. It's saying now it falls on you to make sure that this is true so that you can legitimize the position or the, the first tense or yeah, the positional salvation, the original, original salvation. And the issue is, it's putting the perspective, this perspective puts the focus on you, your efforts, your successes, and your failures. Both your successes and failures. Now all of a sudden the emphasis is on you. And, and I'll say this, that the Bible constantly puts the emphasis on God and his provision for you. So when you're thinking about something that might be flawed theology, if it's inconsistent with the march or the drumbeat of the Bible, which is, without me you can do nothing, that apart from staying connected to me, apart from me working in and through you, apart, you're a vessel that I will work through when you're a yielded instrument to me, apart from that, you have no ability to live the Christian life just like you had no ability to save yourself from the penalty of sin. And so now all of a sudden, if the focus of the teaching is, on you and your efforts and your successes and failures, we know that it's not on point. See, in, in this camp, the emphasis is always on you, your life, your faithfulness, your strength, your effort instead of his life, his faithfulness, his strength, and his work in your life. See, the focus of overcoming positionally and practically was never on you. But note that positionally and practically, neither one was focused on you. It was on the completed work of Jesus and your identification with him. John, in his gospel in chapter 16, 33, I've covered this already in this series, but these things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Now who overcame the world? He overcame the world. You overcome the world because of your identification with him, not because the focus is now all of a sudden on you. You can be of good cheer because of your identification and your close relationship with me, the one who has ultimately overcome the world. This is all vicarious. You get in on this because of who you are in me, being my child, being born into my family. And this is the victory, is the last phrase, that has overcome the world, our faith. What leads to victory over the world? And the answer is simply your faith. The literal render here is the faith of us. 
The faith of us is the victory that has overcome the world. For the sake of time, we're just going to leave that. And that's where we get the song that we sang, we're going to be singing here this month. Because if you're rephrasing this, it would say, faith is the victory that has overcome the world. And that's the, where the song title comes from. Now, when you're thinking about faith, faith describes beliefs, not actions or behaviors. Faith is speaking about what you believe, what you've been convinced about. It's not focusing on actions and behaviors. Now, those that get their theology or start to get their theology off a little bit in this area, those individuals put the focus on your behavior. They become fruit inspectors. They become focused on the byproduct instead of what is it that's bringing about the byproduct anyway. It's the abiding. It's the life of faith. It's the intimate fellowship that is bringing about the outcomes. But they become focused on the outcomes. And so when you're thinking about, let's see, I'll click through this. And what are you talking about your beliefs? What beliefs are in view here? Your beliefs about Jesus rather than what? Your beliefs about the practices of the church, the traditions of men, your faithfulness. So the faith that is, provides the victory that overcomes the world is your faith in Jesus. The specific things that are believed are in view. What are the specific things that you've believed? And those are the beliefs that you have about the person and work of Jesus Christ and his provision for Christian living through the empowerment of his spirit living inside of you. Now I have on the screen here, this is not talking about the quality of your belief. It is not a matter of more faith or less faith. It's not about the amount of your faith. The power is in what you believe and who you believe in. This isn't focused on you. This is focused on who are you putting your confidence in? What are the things that you are believing? Who do you believe in? And so as you consider even that, faith is only as good as its object. And then you think about what is the only valid object of my faith? Well, that is Christ is the only object of my faith. Now, is the victory. Is is a linking verb. It's equivalent grammatically to an equal sign. So we have really faith equals victory. But it's used here as a noun. And it's the only time that John in his epistles or in his gospel ever uses this word as a noun. Now, he uses this word which is usually translated believe when it comes to a, the verb form of it 110 times. This is the only time he uses it as a noun. Faith, meaning what it is that you're believing, your beliefs, that is the thing that creates victory that then overcomes the world. So when we talk about has overcome, here we're talking about a past event that has already occurred. The believer is already a world conqueror by means of his faith in Christ. So that's that identification. I overcome or conquer the world because of my belief, my faith in 
who Jesus is and what he's done. Now as I'm identified with him and he's the overcomer and I'm his child, I become an overcomer too because of my positional identification with him. So in contrast to the present tense overcoming in the first part of this verse and in verse five, that whole verse is talking about the present tense. But it's a conquering victory, a permanent victory in the battle that John has in view here based on this fact that we're talking about has overcome. This has already happened. I've already won the war even though I have many battles left to face in front of me. And so when you're thinking about these things, we have to move on to the Lord's Supper here this morning just for the sake of time. So we're not going to get through verse 5 here. Verse 5 is actually not that uh, long. It says, who is he who overcomes the world? That person is he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Now we'll see next week that that verse is in the present tense. So we have this permanent victory, positional victory that is associated with our faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ and our identification with him. That gives us victory in the, in the war. But then when you're talking about day-to-day practical victory, which John has been talking about primarily in this book, he's just going to go on to say, then the one who is, this is a statement of fact positionally. Now, as that's a statement of fact positionally, now practically, this is going to be true of the one who is presently believing in Jesus as the solution for his victory over the effects or the influence of sin in his daily life. And that'll come out next week, Lord willing. Now let's shift to the Lord's Supper. Now the Lord's Supper, we have talked about this once a month, if you've been here, but the Lord's Supper is this opportunity for us to be intentional about celebrating Christ's death, remembering. It's a time of remembrance. Now remembering what? Well, remembering who Jesus is and what he's done for us, his shedding of his blood as he sacrificed himself in the place of the guilty. Now, if we were not guilty, if we didn't have a problem, if we didn't have a need, Jesus never would have had to come and die for us. Jesus did not die for his sin. Jesus did not die because he had some problem that was separating him from God. He was God. He had never been separated from God. It wasn't for any iniquity that he had or any trespasses or sins or transgressions that he had. It was for your sins and mine that he needed to come and die. And so we know that the good news of the gospel is that though man was born identified with the sin of Adam and was a sinner himself, every man, woman, and child on planet earth had had done things that were incompatible with God's standards of what was right. And because of that, sin is what that's called, to do something contrary to what God says is right. Because of that sin, God in his holiness was separated from having a present relationship with that sinfulness. So God being holy, he couldn't have that intimate relationship he wanted to have with his the humans that he had created because they were now all associated with this sinfulness. And so something had to be done about the sin. And so God in his love, he sent his son Jesus to become that sin for us, to effectively take that sin off of each and every one of us and to put it on himself. God the Father took our sin and he put it on the Son of God. So as Jesus died on Calvary, he was dying there bearing your sins and bearing my sins. He was cloaked, if you will, in all of our sins, covered in our sins. 
And the value of his life, the value of his death, exceeded the debt that was owed for all of our sins. And so that separation, that wall of sin that had been separating sinful mankind from a holy and righteous God was broken down. It was destroyed by the death of Christ as he made that final sacrifice for sin. So then the issue that each person is facing isn't, is it my sin that is separating me from God anymore? My sin has already been paid for by the Savior. That's why we'll drink the cup. That's why we'll break the bread. It shows his body was broken for us. His blood was shed for us. That has already happened. That doesn't need to yet happen again. It's already happened once. So the the issue isn't, has a payment been made? The payment has been made. The issue isn't, was the payment satisfactory? The payment was satisfactory. It fully paid the debt that was owed. So then the issue is, will you accept that payment that was made on your behalf? That's what John is talking about in those other uses, those 120 plus uses of the word that is translated faith, but he translates it believe. Most of the other instances, he's talking about, will you believe this? Will you accept this? Will you put your confidence in this? And John has gone on to say that whoever does believe that will not perish, but will have everlasting life. Unfortunately, not everybody makes that decision, but as you sit there today, you'll have nothing to remember if you haven't put your confidence and trust in what Christ already did for you. So I encourage you, if you sit here today, you don't know where you'll spend eternity, you haven't put your confidence and trust in the work of Christ, that you would do so. That you would stop trying to make yourself acceptable to God through your human efforts, through your religious works, through your religious commitments, and you would see that none of that stuff could ever make you righteous. Because no matter how hard you tried, you'd still fall short of God's standard of what is perfect. But yet that God, you put your confidence in the fact that God made you perfect symbolically as he took all of your imperfection and died in your place. So now to culminate that or to finalize that, the gift is being offered. The question is, will you receive it? Will you put your trust in it? Will you be convinced to put your confidence in that finished work on your behalf? And if you do, you can do that literally right now in your mind. You can say, yeah, I'll... I've never heard it that way. I thought I had to do something. You're saying I just have to believe in what's already been done for me? Yes, that's what I'm saying. And if you did that this moment, then you'd have something to celebrate. What I would say if you haven't, then there's no point in pretending. Just let the cup pass you by. Let the basket pass you by. But leave here thinking, what's stopping me from putting my faith in what Christ has done for me? All right, at this time I'd ask the elders and ushers and whoever's going to help with communion to come forward.